1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
2: On this episode... A researcher of advanced civilizations in prehistory reveals startling details of an ancient and extinct human population called the Denisovans. Their ancestors may have built the mysterious structure uncovered in southeastern Turkey known as Gobekli Tepe and also the pyramids at Giza.
0: It's said that these giants were the creators of the earliest architecture, the earliest bridges, earliest irrigation, the earliest music. There is incredible evidence that the Denisovans reached a very high state of human behavior.
2: Hey, I need a favor. I need you to fill out a quick survey for me, and I'm going to give you the URL where you can find it in just a moment. This survey really helps small, independent podcasters like me gather valuable data on who's listening. The more listeners who complete the survey, the more accurate the data. You'll really be supporting me and my work. Thanks in advance. Now, here's the URL. And incidentally, you can also find the URL in the episode notes. H-T-T-P colon, double forward slash, l i b s y n L-I-B-S-Y-N.com forward slash conspiracy-unlimited. Again, H-T-T-P colon double forward slash com forward slash conspiracy-unlimited. Thank you so very much.
1: Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads
2: Hey, welcome to episode 100. That is a pretty cool milestone, if I do say so myself. And it's all because of you. Thank you so much for listening and all of your support. Please drop me a line sometime at richardserat1 at gmail.com and tell me how and where you listen to Conspiracy Unlimited. I was thinking of setting off a confetti cannon to celebrate the 100th episode, but this is such a small little studio, I was worried the ceiling might come down. Now, after this episode, I'm going to be coming to you from southern Greece for the rest of August and part of September. However, I'll still be churning out three episodes a week, do not fear. I'll just be looking out over the Mycenaean Bay instead of the four walls in my little studio beneath the stairs. Built at the end of the last ice age around 9600 BCE, Gobekli Tepe in southeast Turkey was designed to align with the constellation of the celestial swan, Cygnus, a fact confirmed by the discovery at the site of a tiny bone plaque carved with the three key stars of Cygnus. Remarkably, the three main pyramids at Giza in Egypt also will align with these same three stars. But where did this ancient veneration of Cygnus come from? In part one of this mini two-part series on the Donisovans, my guest Andrew Collins will show that Cygnus was once seen as a portal to the sky world, an idea that dates back to Russian Siberia, where the cult of the swan flourished as much as 20,000 years ago. This ancient cosmology, as well as a complex numeric system based on long-term eclipse cycles, are derived from an extinct human population known as the Denisovans. Not only were they of exceptional size, but archaeological discoveries show that this previously unrecognized human population achieved an advanced level of culture, including the use of high-speed drilling and the creation of musical instruments. We're about to delve into how the stars of Cygnus coincided with the turning point of the heavens at the moment the Denisovan legacy was handed to the first human societies in southern Siberia 45,000 years ago and catalyzing beliefs in swan ancestry and the understanding of Cygnus as the source of cosmic creation and the path of souls. Andrew Collins was born in 1957 in Bedford, England. He's a science and history writer who's been investigating the idea of advanced civilizations in prehistory since 1979. He's the co-discoverer of a massive cave complex beneath the Giza Plateau, now known as Collins Caves, and is the author of numerous books that challenge the way we perceive the past. His new book is called The Cygnus Key, the Denisovan legacy, Gobekli Tepe, and the birth of Egypt. Andrew Collins, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you?
0: Yeah, I'm fine, yes. I'm currently suffering the hottest day on record in the UK, apparently. Uh, I mean, It's nearly 100, apparently, uh, uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Um, and I've been sitting in doing my accounts, which is not very rock and roll, obviously, but... They're just finished, and I am I want to get out of it and talk about the mysteries, so uh, here I am.
2: All right, terrific. The Cygnus Key, the Denisovan legacy, Gobekli Tepe, and the birth of Egypt. Let's just spend a few minutes, if we could, for those not familiar with uh, Gobekli Tepe, this incredibly ancient artifact in southeastern Turkey.
0: Well, I think some people call it the sort of smoking gun of a lost civilization. Um, And I think maybe we should come back to what the idea of a lost civilization is shortly. But it's a series of stone enclosures, stone circles if you like, uh, made of these standing pillars that have these T-shaped terminations. Um, They're covered in beautiful carvings of animals and birds. Some of them are very clearly anthropomorphic because they've got these reliefs of arms ending in these narrow spindly fingers on their front narrow edges that face towards the centre of these enclosures, which are essentially circular, or slightly ovoid or elliptoid, but um, that's their main shape. And they point towards two larger pillars at the middle of these enclosures. Um, and they are truly magnificent, particularly in the best preserved of them uh, that we have so far. Uh, and these clearly represent some kind of gateway, um, probably between this world and the next, you know, whatever you perceive as the next. Um, and these were constructed on a mountaintop in southeast Turkey 11,500 years ago. I mean, that's very extraordinary. Uh, and it's something which archaeologists, uh, prehistorians, anthropologists had never expected to find. Uh, because there's nothing else really like this until many thousands of years later with the foundation of civilizations like Samaria and Egypt, uh, the Indus Valley cultures of, of India and Pakistan, for instance, you know, and of course, other places around the world where high culture developed into civilization is something that only occurred thousands of years later. So what was going on at Quebecly Tapay at this time?
2: exactly i mean when From you think my- about sorry andrew but when you think about uh, uh you know at the end of the last ice age uh humans were largely nomadic creatures uh, and so to have uh i mean you would have needed a tremendously organized highly skilled workforce to put something like this together it just doesn't doesn't mesh with the the official narrative
0: well indeed i mean you know you would have had to have Hundreds, if not thousands, of people involved. A massive infrastructure involved, not just in the creation of the uh, the temples, because that's ultimately what they are, but also the maintenance of them, um, the priesthoods behind them, uh, and obviously the 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 backup. You know, the the families behind all of those involved. And as I said, you're talking about thousands of people. And what's so interesting is that no domestic remains have actually been found at Gobekli Tepe, which means that clearly somewhere else in that landscape uh, were thousands of people living on on a day-to-day basis. Uh, And there have been a number of what they call occupational mounds found in the area, but many of these have yet to be investigated. And almost certainly uh, they formed the cultures that, was responsible for the creation of gobekli tepe and let's point out that gobekli tepe wasn't just in isolation there are several other similar although i must say smaller um cult centers in the same area of southeast uh, turkey uh, for instance nivali chori which is to the north of gobekli tepe there's karahan tepe which is about 25 30 miles to the uh, east of Quebec Tepe, and that's completely unexcavated at this time. So it was a culture. It wasn't one single place. But, of course, you have to start asking yourself where the knowledge came from to allow this type of sophistication to exist, not just a sophistication of being able to carve monuments like this, but the fact is that it, they are very clearly aligned towards stars. And yes. there does seem to be a relationship of the stars um, and in particular they seem to be interested in the northern part of the sky um, where you find the Milky Way um, and also very clearly from the, the work that I've done with the engineer Rodney Hale it seems as if their point of connection between the sky and the local horizon was the constellation Cygnus now this is the celestial bird uh, we know it mostly as a swan in Europe uh, although in various other countries, uh, including the the American continent, it's other types of birds, including the goose, that the eagle, the hawk, the thunderbird, um, and the vulture uh, at gebekli Tepe, uh, and the surrounding um, you know near early Neolithic uh, cult centres, it would seem as if. It was the vulture that represented um, the constellation of Cygnus.
2: When I think of uh, Cygnus, I think of I think of the word cygnet, which that's a young swan, correct?
0: That's correct. Yeah, I mean Cygnus simply means swan in Latin, basically. Um, but it's a great word, and, and it, it's enigmatic, and you know, it's it, it starts to make you think. Well, you know, what is Cygnus? What well, you know? Uh, well, ultimately, as I said, it's a group of stars in the sky. They form a cross shape, uh, hence the constellation's more popular name of the Northern Cross. Um, I mean, and it's been known as that. It's also been the Cross of Calvary, the Cross of St. Helen, um, since at least the 5th to 6th century AD uh, within Christian tradition. Um, So it's seen as a symbol of resurrection for Christians. And I think that's quite significant as well, because the various different cultures around the world, which we find everywhere from megalithic Britain to the Native American Mound cultures of North America to the Incas of Peru, to the people of Quebec Tepe and the pyramid builders of Egypt, all of them would seem to have seen the Cygnus constellation as a place of first creation and a place where souls would seem to have come from before incarnation and return to in death. So we're not saying that these people believe that they came from the stars themselves, their physical flesh and blood bodies, you know, or their ancestors, but that the souls actually originated amongst the stars. And this could well be the origin of the idea that there is a heaven, you know, and that we actually come from some kind of sky world and will return there in death.
2: That's fascinating because you know so often all we hear about when it comes to particularly with 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 the pyramids in Giza are is is Orion, Orion this and Orion that. So for me this is this is new information, Cygnus. I mean uh, um I don't think people are aware of the connection. Are they? I mean, why did we get sidetracked with Orion?
0: Well, I think because what the Orion mystery did and I mean, you know, this say this I mean it was an incredible book came out obviously in the early part of the 1990s I read it myself loved it um, and in many ways it probably helped inspire me to write these type of books because I realized that it wasn't just Egyptologists you know with with credentials that could write books on ancient Egypt you know other people could do that as well like Robert Bouval, who was uh, and still is uh, obviously technically a um, an engineer um, and I admired his work, and I think that that was one of the inspirations behind me changing my tact of, of the type of books I'd been writing up to that time, which were mostly what, you know, supernatural adventure that's what I was writing up to that time. And I'd been doing a lot of research um, into the origins of civilization, and I realized that, you know, putting it together as in a book was a great idea, but this obviously also coincided with the earliest books by Graham Hancock as well, Fingerprints yes. of the Gods. And, and I mean, I knew Graham at this time, um, and I remember him actually coming up with the whole idea of, of Fingerprints of the Gods. We were both, you know, sharing our ideas about, you know, it, looking into lost civilizations back in the early 90s, and obviously, you know, here we are today. But as far as Orion is concerned, I think it, it just caught the public's imagination and I think that every generation has their star of interest. Uh, before that, it was Sirius. Uh, before that, you know, in the 50s, the Pleiades was was very important to do with space aliens. Um, you know, the idea of flying saucers and whatever coming from the Pleiades. Um, and but I mean, clearly there are you know at least 40 to 50 different constellations in the sky, and they all they all had different. Um, importances to ancient cultures. And what I've done is to focus my attentions, um, not just on sickness, but what I've found is that there are so many cultures that do have the interest in the same area of the sky, which as I said, corresponds very specifically not just of the Milky Way, but a particular area of the Milky Way where it splits into two. It forks into two separate branches.
2: The Dark Rift. This is
0: thought by something known as the Dark Rift or Mm -hmm. the Great Rift. And this point where it splits has been seen by many cultures as the entrance or exit to the sky world. And that corresponds to the position of the stars of Cygna. So all of this together suggests that we should be looking at that area of the sky.
2: Fascinating. Now, what is the connection between this star group and sound acoustics and the use of musical intervals?
0: Um, Well, you'd think nothing, really. But what's so interesting is that various of the creation myths associated with Cygnus seem to involve some kind of cosmic bird that makes the, the the sound of creation, and that this brings the universe into being. For instance, in a- in Egypt, ancient Egypt, there was a goose known as the Gengenwer, um, which means something like the great honker, basically, and that this you know made this sound. It, it was a totem of the god Geb, who is the earth god, um, and you know the, the the world came into being, and you have a very similar. Uh, thing going on in Vedic uh, Indian tradition where you have the the swan goose known as Hamsa or Kali Hamsa, which means the the swan of time, um, that also either makes the sound that that brings the the world into creation um, or it is the vehicle that allows the god Brahma, the creator god, to bring the world into being. Plus it's also the symbol of Sarasvati, she is the goddess um, who is the consort of brahma uh, and in some creation traditions in, Ve- in the vedic um, world um, she sort of encourages you know with the swan and encourages brahma to bring the world into being so the swan is very much associated with the idea that sound can in some way create manifestation within the physical world and then if you go and look Into the Greek tradition, you find that the swan is also one of the most primary symbols connected with what's known as the music of the spheres. Yes. Uh, This is the belief that that the stars, both the fixed stars, you know, i.e., the normal stars that go round and round in the sky, but also the planets themselves, emit an invisible, sorry, not invisible, well, it is invisible, an invisible but also in an audible sound, but that somehow. We can translate that information and create sounds by using musical instruments, um, in particular harmonies known as musical in, uh, intervals. Um, and this was something that, for instance, um, you know, Pythagoras and Plato and other Greek, um, you know, Greek thinkers um, sort of promoted in the first millennium BC. And the swan would seem to have been very much associated with, with, with this. It was the symbol of the vehicle of this invisible sound. And this invisible sound wasn't just there for the sake of it. It brought the inspiration of the muses. In other words, it allowed what we would refer to as creativity or evolution. And as I said, Cygnus and the swan was particularly associated with that and that area of the sky.
2: Would that have any? Would there be any connection with this ancient musical scale and uh, Nikola Tesla, who often used to talk about the power of of um, certain musical notes—threes, sixes, and nines?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, uh, those alone—you know—probably oversimplification, because you know, if we're talking about, let's say, you know, the musical scale, the use of octaves, the use of of musical inter. Uh, intervals, which are based on geometry, you know, the idea of the split of three, four ratios or three, two ratios creating the perfect fourth, the perfect fifth, um, that all of these are involved, not just with the sounds created by musical instruments, but also by sacred architecture. There are architecture all around the world, which have these, these, these prod- divine proportions um, built into their structures, and what I show in the Cygnus Key is that this is present not just within the monuments at Giza, the Great, great Pyramid, um, and the Giza Plateau as a whole, with its underlying grand plan or, or geometry, but also it's there at Quebec The earliest and most sophisticated monuments at Quebec Tepe all have the same. Um, relationship this three four relationship not just the ovoid ones but also one of the key uh, rectilinear structures there as well this cannot be coincidence I mean you know they they obviously were 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 doing a three four ratio uh, in the construction for a reason and what's so interesting is that the three four ratio which creates the perfect fourth um, which is seen as almost like this perfect you know uh, double tone that's that, that created, um, that was first defined by Pythagoras, um, is something which is still used today in the construction of things like theatres, you know, for productions, you know, musical or, you know, opera productions, whatever. And I mean, I, I managed to find a, a quote for the book which you could almost use for Gobekli Tepe, and, and, and it says, you know, when creating your, your building, use the three-four ratio, uh, and this will better enhance the sound acoustics. Um, and, you know, so very clearly, this was important. It was important about trying to bring into manifestation something that was seen to exist on an invisible, inaudible level, but something that needed to be manifested to allow us to become closer to what we might refer to as the divine the the source the the cause of cosmic creation
2: this podcast is supported by The Horrible Movie Podcast. It's a weekly show hosted by Jack Altermat. Jack invites a guest who brings a horrible theater-released movie to dissect. Jack and his guests take you through the highs and lows of the movie and what makes it horrible. New movies, older movies, cult classics, or box office busts. No movie is spared or safe from The Horrible Movie Podcast. It's a fun show with clean language, and it's available through Spreaker.com, Apple Podcasts, StudioDNA.media, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Remember, just because it's from Hollywood doesn't mean it isn't horrible.
1: As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess he better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett.
2: Andrew Collins, the author of The Cygnus Key, is here in part one of our two-part mini-series. Getting back to the cult of the swan, you you point out that this cult was flourishing in Siberia, of all places, as much as 20,000 years ago. Talk to me about that.
0: Well, it's actually 24,000. And uh, there is a a site there uh, named Malta. Um, M-A-L apostrophe T-I and it's on a branch of a big river known as the Angara River that's linked to Lake Bacow which is this huge inland sea Um, and as early as 24,000 years that they were not only producing these incredible mother goddess statues which uh, have to be seen to be believed amongst the oldest anywhere in the world but in addition to that they were producing these swamp pendants with these extremely long straight necks stubby bodies uh, which were which some many of them had holes in them so they were clearly being used as pendants but when discovered they were often found to be aligned towards north south and this was noted by the archaeologists and they began to realize that there was a relationship between this and the fact that certain types of wild fowl, uh, waterfowl you know most obviously swans and geese migrate north and south to their breeding grounds. Their breeding grounds are generally in the north where they go in a summer period. And then obviously when the weather gets harsh, they migrate backwards south towards you know, a, a lower latitude. And this is something that goes on all the way around the world. Um, and this relationship to the migrating birds has been connected universally with the idea of the soul traveling from this world to a northerly placed um, other world or land of the dead or sky world. Um, And this is essentially what these archeologists came to realize in Siberia. Um, But in addition to this, they realized that this must therefore have involved not just the idea that the soul took the form of a bird in death, or, or, and also before incarnation, of course, as well, But also that we're talking about some of the earliest forms of animism, the idea that we can somehow connect directly with the mind or the soul or spirit of a bird and in this manner take flight within the invisible realms, within the the, the spirit realm, if you like, to travel from this world to the next and back again.
2: And and would the musical intervals perhaps being played uh, maybe at, at the moment of death, for example, would that would that uh, be involved in some sort of, um, I don't know, almost an alchemical uh, uh, process? It to, to you know to further the the human spirit into the afterlife.
0: Well, I mean, you know, just as you're saying this, I'm thinking of alchemy, and, you know, one of the the final. Transformations in alchemy is is the it's called the albedo which is where you become the swan. Um, there's also a strange medieval game in Europe known as the, the game of the goose. Um, it has a series of of squares, um, you know, which each which are like steps, which you um, you use dice and you travel along, and it's a little bit like snakes and ladders. Uh, and at the end of this, you actually p- bypass death and become a swan, um, you know, quite clearly uh, in the afterlife. And it, the, the whole game is obviously about the process of life on this earth, the 63 squares representing, you know, idealistic 63 years on earth, you know, and then once you die, becoming a swan and transforming. Um, and these ideas would seem to be at least 24,000 years old. And I probably would take them back even further Um, And I think that they probably didn't even originate with modern humans um, because all the evidence indicates that these ideas came out of southern Siberia, particularly around the Altai Mountains. Uh, And what's so exciting is that only in recent years we found that this area was home to a previously unknown archaic human that lived from about... Well, possibly around eight, seven or eight hundred thousand years ago, down to forty thousand years ago, and who, who are today known as the Denisovans. Yes. Um, and the the Denisovans we we knew nothing about. Uh, I mean, you know, t- just as a little bit of background, I mean, there's us, Homo sapiens. We've been around for about three hundred thousand years. There was the Neanderthals um, who were mostly in Western Eurasia, uh, from around. Four hundred, 450,000 years ago down to about 30,000 years ago um, and there might have been a few other bits and pieces going on around the world but essentially that was that uh, and then in 2010 um, the examination of the DNA um, and the genome of this finger bone that was found in the Denisova cave which is a stone age occupational site uh, in the Altai Mountains Revealed that it belonged to a previously unknown archaic human, um, because the, the site was known as the Denisova Cave, um, the the people that were, did all the work at the Max Planck Institute of, um, of of Evolutionary Sciences at Leipzig in Germany decided that they would call this this you know this new population the Denisovans. Uh, by the way, that is the correct pronunciation. It is Denisovans, as opposed to Denisovans, as some people, you know, have suggested. Right. Uh, right. And um, what did and, they look like? What did they look like? They
2: were giants, uh, weren't they?
0: Well, I mean, it's tentatively, there is every possibility that they were of extreme size and height. Yes, and even then, we, we we'd have to put a, a, a caveat to say that some of them may have been, but perhaps not all of them. And the reason we say that is that even though there have only been four pieces of fossil remains, just what they call them, in the form of three molars and one finger bone found that have been absolutely confirmed through their DNA to be Denisovan, all of them are of large size. And, I mean, when I say large size, the teeth are massive. I mean, when when they were first found... Um, They were thought to be those of a uh, cave bear. They were so big. Um, They got chewing areas twice the size of of modern humans. And very clearly, people with big teeth don't generally have small frames. Um, And, you know, even though some skeptics might say, well, you know, you you don't know this. You know, they, they may have just had small bodies and big heads or something. It's unlikely. The chances are these people were very, very large. Um, and various other fossil remains, jaw bones and bones have been found, particularly in China um, and in Eastern Asia, which the anthropologists are looking at as possibly belonging to the Denisovans. Uh, some of these are very large. Um, for instance, the, the pengu jawbone that was found uh, in a channel off of um, uh, one of the, the islands, uh, Escape my head. At Taiwan, come I um, off of Taiwan um, is huge. It has teeth that are very similar to the molars that were found in the Denisova cave, um, and this therefore has been proposed possibly as, as belonging to a Denisovan. But then, if you if you see the the Pengu jawbone as possibly a Denisovan, you have to compare that against the jawbones of an early form of human that existed and may even have been our own ancestor. Known as Homo heidelbergensis. Now, Homo heidelbergensis um, first came to our notice in 1907, uh, when a massive jawbone that's actually about 600,000 years old was found just outside of Heidelberg in Germany. Um, And this was examined. Eventually, they found further fossil remains relating to it, um, and they realised that this was a um, a species, a human species that probably preceded Neanderthals and may also even have been modern human ancestor as well. Um, But what's so interesting is that in Spain, just a few years ago, um, human remains that were found in a cave there, which were 430,000 years ago and were expected to be related to Neanderthals but that had been identified as homohydrobigensis, when the results came in, it was found that they were closer to Denisovans than they were to the Neanderthals. So it looks pretty certain that the ancestors of the Denisovans, and, and arguably, perhaps even the survivors, you know, that their direct survivors were the Denisovans, were the Homo heidelbergensis. So are, um, these,
2: are these the giants of, of legend and lore, the giants of the Bible?
0: Yes, they are. Yeah, I mean, when um, Homo heidelbergensis is found in South Africa, for instance, um, they're regularly seven to, seven to seven and a half feet tall. And I think that you will find that the Denisovans were that height, um, or as I said, some of them at least. Uh, I mean, quite clearly, you know, this may only have been the males, maybe the females were, were shorter, we don't know. But um, certainly this, there is this every likelihood that, that this is the case. And yeah, I mean, what's so interesting is that if you then look at the Alte Mountains, which is the only confirmed area where we know that the Denisovans existed, Um, There are giant legends in this area, which are incredibly interesting. I mean, they're not the sort of fairy stories that you find in Europe, you know, like Jack and the Beanstalk or something like that. I mean, they are, the giants were the ancestors of the modern human people that still have their clans and tribes in that region today. And it's said that these giants were the creators of the earliest architecture, the earliest bridges, the earliest irrigation the earliest music, the earliest sounds. Uh, I mean, it's it's really, really interesting. And and I strongly suspect that this is a folk memory of the presence in this region of the Denisovans. Um, And the reason I say that is because there is incredible evidence that the Denisovans reached a very high state of human behavior. Uh, For instance, they produced incredible jewelry. I mean, Listeners, look up the Denisovan bracelet if you haven't already seen it. Uh, It will come up immediately on on Google and you'll see this beautiful bangle in this green stone known as claritorite, And it's beautifully polished, beautifully finished, Uh, and it has a hole in it that's pierced through it. That, when examined under a microscope, has such a fast speed rate, you know, feed rate. That it's comparable to that of a modern drill ah. it's also obvious from the discovery of of, of needles um in the the, the the denisova cave same level as the denisovans that they wore tailored clothing um, fragments of a bone flute or whistle were found in the same layers the denisovans in the denisova cave so that means there were certainly you know, uh, understood music and sound, and made instrument musical instruments. Um, also, DNA evidence of horses um, and bones of horses being found at Denisova Cave has also prompted the suggestion that the Denisovans rode around on horses. Um, there's more. I mean, stunts, sure. the stone tool technology that they developed was quite extraordinary as well, and went on to influence the Upper Paleolithic peoples, right the way down to the beginning of the Neolithic age.
2: Well, that does it for part one of my conversation with Andrew Collins on the Denisovan legacy and Gobekli Tepe, the Cygnus constellation, and the birth of Egypt. I'll be right back with some more news about episode 101.
1: We knew that we had finally solved the case through his confession. The history of rock and roll is littered with suspicious deaths and the unexplainable. The last
2: thing he said to anybody was to Suge Knight and it was on dying
1: Man. Lennon, Hendrix, Presley, Jim Morrison, the truth told by the experts and the people there. Revelations that will blow yeah, your mind. <laughs> the Rock and Roll Twilight Zone with Richard Sarrett. Listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts and Google Play.
2: Next time on Conspiracy Unlimited, part two of my conversation with Andrew Collins, author of The Cygnus Key, The Denisovan Legacy, Gobekli Tepe, and the Birth of Egypt. Until next time, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now.
1: A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind.